situation, as well as the state's response to Tail's application for further particulars. Liberians lined up at polling stations across the country on Tuesday to decide on a variety of constitutional changes. These included the shortening of presidential terms to five years and allowing dual citizenship. Half of the Senate's 30 seats were being contested alongside the referendum, which was promised by President George Weah's predecessor, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. Former soccer star Weah's election victory in 2017 was greeted with wild celebrations, but he has since faced protests from those who he says have failed to who say to him he has failed to tackle corruption in October where his team was forced to publicly denounce fears that the vote was a ploy to allow him to seek a third term even though he's only three years into his first mandate. Malawi Press Secretary for the State President Brian Bander has revealed that a performance review for the Cabinet will be done by the end of this month on July 10, 2020 during swearing in of Cabinet Minister President Dr. Lazarus Chakwere said that the performance of Cabinet Ministers would be reviewed after five months. Speaking on the sidelines of a State House weekly update in Blantyre, Bander said reviewing performances of the Cabinet Ministers will lead to firing of all underperforming ministers. However, Bandra has called for patience on the plans to review the current performance of the cabinet ministers. Lastly, a 90-year-old woman has become the first person to be given a COVID jab as part of the mass vaccination program being rolled out across the UK. Margaret Kinnan, who turns 91 next week, was given the first of 800,000 doses uh, of the vaccine that will be given in the coming weeks. Hubs in the UK will vaccinate over 80,000 over 80s rather, and some healthcare staff, up to 4 million more are expected by the end of the month. Keenan has urged others to get vaccinated. Today marks the start of an unprecedented national effort to protect the country's most vulnerable. 70 hospitals across the UK will be the hubs from where the first wave of the COVID-19 vaccine will be administered. There are 800,000 doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine currently available with up to 4 million more expected by the end of the month. To begin with, the jabs will be for care home staff, those administering the vaccinations and people over the age of 80. Channel African News, I am Onelin Sinsi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. You are listening to Africa Digest here on Channel Africa from an African perspective. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Common Front for the Congo, FCC, former President Joseph Kabila's political platform has called on ministers from President Felix Chisikedi's cap for change to quit the government. The call comes as a, as a consequence of Chisikedi's decision to end the coalition between both platforms. Kabila's FCC has described the end of the coalition as a launch and beginning of the cohabitation. Januel Bomwenze reports from Kinshasa. The Kenyan FCC platforms signed an agreement to rule the DRC in coalition in 2019 as President Chisekedi didn't win the parliamentary majority after December 2018 elections. 
The majority went to former President Joseph Kabila's FCC, being in the National Assembly, in the Senate, and in the Provincial Assemblies. And according to this country's constitution, the Prime Minister, the government, as well as the Parliament speakers of both chambers are from the majority. The FCC has then noted President Chisekedi's decision of ending the coalition, meaning launching the cohabitation. Kabila's platform has then called on cash to act accordingly by quitting the government on both the national and provincial levels. Naomi Mulanya is the FCC coordinator. Il revient plutôt au cash de tirer toutes les conséquences. It's up to Cash to act accordingly to the decision ending the coalition by quitting the government on both national and provincial levels. The FCC wants the public to know that it will ask its leader, Joseph Kabila, to give more light on the current political situation as created by the President of the Republic. On the other side, the FCC denounces a decision series President Chisekedi has made in violation of the Constitution and that might plunge the country in chaos. Nemi Mwilanya, the FCC coordinator, has also described that the Chisekedi threat to dissolve the National Assembly as an intimidation since there is no legal reason for that. Meanwhile, most of people here believe what this country needs now is a leadership that takes care of the Congolese citizens and not selfish leaders who care about their own interest. Hervé Diakese is from the Congolese Debo Civil Movement. We are waiting for a leadership which is involved about fighting corruption, fighting impunity, but all the crimes that occur in the country, a leadership more involved for freedom of people, respect of human rights, also for preparing elections that respect international standards about transparency, freedom of campaigning, of competing also. We expect a way of managing the country that will not depend on private agreement where those who are in charge of public charge, like a ministry, like a member of parliament, are more interested on referring on their boss of the party and not of the population or public interest. That's what we have seen during coalition. It was like to hijack the states for working for their own interest and not for the interest of all the population. The political crisis underway here in the Democratic Republic of Congo is worsening on daily basis. There is a serious confusion and disorder at the National Assembly due to misunderstanding between both sides' MPs. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Now, former Zambian government ministers and their deputies who continued to stay in office after parliament was dissolved ahead of the general elections in 2016 have been ordered to pay particular amounts back to the state for their illegality. The ministers continued to stay in office and throwing government money was declared illegal by the courts in 2017, but they refused to an extent of challenging the matter in court, which was not successful. Our Zambia correspondent Arthur Davis Sikopo sent this report from Lusaka. The decision and tabulations have finally been made ahead of the 2016 general elections when parliament was dissolved 
and at the instruction of President of Zambia, Edgar Lungu, that they were legally right to stay in office, the ministers, both top and deputies, continued using state resources, something that many argued that was against the law. And President Lungu, who is also a qualified lawyer, told Zambians that his ministers then had the right, according to the newly appended Constitution of Zambia, to continue in office three months after parliament was dissolved till a next government was elected. But opposition, United Party for National Development, and the Law Association of Zambia, a body that represents lawyers in the country, went to court and sued the Attorney General and the 65 former Deputy Ministers and Ministers respectively, challenging that the decision of them staying in office was against the law. The court then ruled that yes, indeed, the former Ministers were in office illegally and had to pay back what they earned. This declared the interpretation of the law by the President and his team as outrightly wrong. And on 7th December 2020, over four years later, the Constitution Court has finally given each of the former ministers amounts of how much they owe the state for their wrongful stay in office. The amounts calculated from May 2016 to July the same year are in the range of 2,500 and 3,500 United States dollars respectively. On average, 180,000 United States dollars is supposed to be paid by a bunch of erring ex-ministers. And this money is ordered to be paid within 30 days of this judgment. But what do Zambians say about this? Lewis Mwape is a development expert. And that lawmakers, former lawmakers, it will be very, very important and important for them to just run up and ensure that they pay. That's the money that was stolen from the coffers, the public coffers, the money which was supposed to build a school went into a private pocket. National commentator Felix Conoso has this to say. They knew it was... Uh, what they were doing uh, was uh, illegal. So what surprised me is why they stayed on. If they were reasonable people, they were supposed to uh, resign and let these ministers pay back without fail. I think 30 days is just too much, considering that they've been holding the money for the last five years or so. Stephen Kampiong, who is a current Minister of Home Affairs, who was also part of the team that remained as ministers, through a local radio interview, says he is willing to pay the amount and respect the rule of law. Justice Minister Given Lobinda says he is willing to pay, though the 30 days given to them to pay is not enough, and he is pleading for an extension. As a law-abiding citizen, uh, I just have to comply with the decision of the court, except that... Uh, I'm not sure whether I can manage to raise all that money within 30 days. So I'm still thinking about how to handle this. I'm actually contemplating appealing to the court so that they can give me an extension because in 30 days I don't think I can manage to raise such a colossal amount of money. I'm going to appeal to the court. But Zambians like Felix Conoso and Lewis Mwape say that the 56,000 kwacha or the $2,600 that Minister of Justice is complaining about is too low for him to cry foul. He's being unfair. He's, he's not considering the poor people who've missed out on that money for the last five years and no interest was charged on him. What is 50,000, 60,000 kwacha? In dollar terms, they're just talking of a mayor. $3,000. How can a minister fail to pay $3,000 in one month? When was the judgment uh, passed? The long time, given Rubinda has been using that as a tactic to run away from pain. 
if today we went to check his uh, work in terms of money that is in his account, I think he's able to do that. But also we must also know that it is also a right of rights of citizens to make a deal. The UPND that took the matter to court is happy with the judgment. Arthur Davis Scopo reporting in Lusaka, Zambia. Lawyers in Cameroon have declared an indefinite strike to protest what they call government interference in their profession. The stop work action which follows a five-day strike last week that got no government response is implemented with courtrooms across the country remaining closed. The men and women of the law say they will return to the courts only when a deal is struck with the government. Moki Kinzeka reports from Yaounde. Only the hissing noise of air conditioners was heard at the usually busy full courtroom in Cameroon's capital Yaounde on Monday. 42-year-old teacher Magnus Arnold says he is witness to a case concerning his younger brother. He says he found a locked courtroom. My brother was intercepted by the police for rape and we believe he is innocent. We have been expecting justice to be rendered here at the court of first instance. But no lawyer is present. See for yourself, court doors are locked. This is very terrible. I don't know how much time he will spend again awaiting trial. There is something fundamentally wrong in Cameroon and no one seems to bring order. The Cameroon Bar Council held an initial five-day strike last week to protest an incident on November 27 in the city of Douala, the Bar Council says security forces tried to intervene in a case there accusing lawyers of corruption. When the lawyers insisted that police leave the courtroom, the police attacked them with tear gas. Everestus Mofo is president of the Bar Council's General Assembly. Lawyers who are supposed to be independent people, who are supposed to carry out their activities independently and in a liberal manner, are seen to be pushed here and there. That is why we said we have to tell the world that all is not going well. But the strike is not meant to spoil, it is meant to fix. If by some inadvertence people violate those resolutions, it can be understood. But if they sit and by design, they decide to defy the resolutions taken by the Bar Council, the Bar Council will not be indifferent to such unwholesome behavior of lawyers. So if a handful of them decide to ignore, they will be visited by some sanctions, which is the reverse and the reserve of the Bar Council, which transforms itself into a disciplinary council. He says lawyers will not attend court sessions to protest what he says is the maltreatment of lawyers by the government. The decision to strike was taken by resolutions of the Bar Council and the strike was in two phases. Sitting strike from the 30th of November to the 4th of December 2020. I think as of now, I can evaluate it at 98% respected. If you look at the caption of the resolutions, it is the persecution of lawyers in Cameroon. Persecution of lawyers in Cameroon means that their rights have been violated. You know of the events that took place in Douala when the courtroom was invaded by armed uniformed people and lawyers were beaten up. 
After the Dwala incident, two prominent attorneys, including human rights lawyer Richard Tamfu, were arrested on charges of violence and corruption. They were released after pressure from the Bar Council. The Bar Council also asked the government to let lawyers do their jobs without further interference. Lawyers say they are often denied access to clients in detention centers and accuse the government of extracting confessions from suspects through the use of torture and inducements. Morfo says the government did not respond, triggering what he calls an indefinite strike. Morfo says the consequences will be heavy for the government and those seeking justice. The consequences are very, very glaring. For example, in criminal matters, especially felonies, where an accused person risks an imprisonment term of life or capital punishment, the assistance of counsel is mandatory. And once the counsel is not there, the matter has to be adjourned. And if this is done several times, that tantamounts to delay. And justice delayed is justice denied. It also has socioeconomic effects. Imagine litigants who travel from far and near. Talk about those in the suburbs. If they come and the matter is adjourned many times, where do they have the money? Paying hotel bills, where do they have that money? And we also talk about the economy of the country. We are talking about the investment. What will investors think about the judicial system? The economic consequences are there. So, as I said, there is every reason that the problems should be fixed for a healthy legal system. When contacted, a government spokesperson declined to comment on the strike. Political analyst Eric Matthias Ewonangini of the University of Yaoundé says relations between the government and lawyers have always been sour. He says the government should open up to dialogue to solve problems with lawyers. The interdependence between state judges, the prosecutors, lawyers, is uh, very important. Uh, for uh, the due process of law, we need a strong collaboration between these stakeholders. And we need also that the process of law and justice should not be seized and captured by political interests. I think what is important is the spirit of dialogue between the stakeholders. The state should be able to listen at what the lawyers are really asking, what are the claims. But at the same time, the lawyers should be aware of the fact that they don't need to be politically instrumentalized by political parties. Guinea's comment is a reference to a meeting last month between a group of lawyers and opposition leader Maurice Camto. Kamto, himself a lawyer, insists he won the October 2018 presidential elections in Cameroon and his victory was stolen by long-serving President Paul Bia. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment 
to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLab to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. You are listening to Channel Africa from an African perspective. Diplomatic sources say the second phase of fighting has erupted in Tigray between Ethiopian federal forces and Tigray regional troops. The fighting comes at a time when Norwegian refugee agency has pleaded with the Ethiopian authorities to urgently grant it humanitarian access to Mekele, the capital of Tigray region, where more than 100,000 Eritrean refugees are in desperate need of food. James Shimanyula reports. According to Ian England, Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Agency, traumatized Tigrayan refugees are at Umrakuba camp in eastern Sudan, where they arrived and continue to arrive tired, thirsty, and hungry. England tells us what the refugees told him. They said they would not return unless there was a clear protection of civilians and the violence had ended. So at the moment, we're doing our best to scale up humanitarian relief for all of the people coming in the refugee camp Um Rakuba, where Norwegian Refugee Council is operational. Norwegian Council that Jan England is referring to is a Norwegian refugee agency, which, as he has said, is now operating at the Umra Kuba refugee camp in eastern Sudan. Explaining what he hopes will happen in the days to come, England said. We hope the international community will be able to invest in a real, sustainable humanitarian operation that can also bring a durable solution so that these are not sitting in a camp in the future. They are either integrated in livelihoods in the region where they are or are able to return. England explains what the authorities in Ethiopia should do now that traumatized Tigrayans are fleeing in droves to enter neighboring Sudan to seek refuge. They need to work for peace and reconciliation in Ethiopia and elsewhere on the Horn of Africa that they need to do all they can through that diplomacy and through being donor nations so that we as humanitarian groups can do effective humanitarian work, have access to all people in need, also to uh, see how we can do better protection of civilians. We're not supposed to only give assistance, we're also supposed to shield people from abuse. We have not been able to do that. 
England discloses a report he has just received from the ground in Tigray where fighting has resumed between Ethiopian forces and Tigray troops. There's been no humanitarian work happening in Tigray now since the beginning of the conflict because staff on the ground, including the 90 NRC workers there, have been caught in crossfire. That was Jan England, Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Agency. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Are you ready? Something new, informative, fun and exciting is coming your way. Channel Africa is introducing brand new shows and you, our valued listener, do not want to miss these. Live Well will be launched on the 31st of August at 10 hours and will educate us about health, wellness and health lifestyles. African Insight to be launched on the 2nd of September at 8 hours. It looks at infrastructure projects in Africa in an effort to improve the continent's economy. Yours truly to be launched on the 31st of August broadcast on Monday Wednesday and Friday between 22 hours and 23 hours and it will connect listeners to the loved ones through dedications, well wishes topped up with great African music. Cuisines Africa will be launched on the 5th of September at 10 hours and will leave you salivating as we explore diverse African dishes, color of culture and rich history. Tune in to www.channelafrica.co.za or DSTV802 for these new exciting editions. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It is now time for the news headlines with Onel Ntinti. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. South Africa's ruling ANC's president, Sir Ramaphosa, has confirmed that Secretary General Ace Mahashule will appear before the party's integrity commission on Saturday. Liberians lined up at polling stations across the country to decide on a variety of constitutional changes. And the United States has blacklisted Nigeria for religious freedoms. Channel Africa News, I am Onel Nsinsi. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Are you ready? Something new, informative, fun and exciting is coming your way. Channel Africa is introducing brand new shows and you, our valued listener, do not want to miss these. Live Well will be launched on the 31st of August at 10 hours and will educate us about health, wellness and health lifestyles. African Insight to be launched on the 2nd of September at 8 hours. It looks at infrastructure projects in Africa in an effort to improve the continent's economy. Yours truly to be launched on the 31st of August broadcast on Monday, 
Wednesday and Friday between 22 hours and 23 hours. And it will connect listeners to the loved ones through dedications, well wishes, topped up with great African music. Cuisines Africa will be launched on the 5th of September at 10 hours and will leave you salivating as we explore diverse African dishes, colour culture and rich history. Tune in to www.channelafrica.co.za or DSTV 802 for these new exciting editions. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. You are listening to Africa Digest here on Channel Africa from an African perspective. The global healthcare company MSD has announced an, in, in, an investment of more than 700,000 US dollars to non-profit Unjani clinics to build new clinics across South Africa. Unjani Clinics is a network of black women-owned and um, run primary care clinics that provide accessible, affordable, quality health care to communities in poorly served communities. Well, for more on uh, this uh, investment, we are now joined on the line by Naren Rao, Director for Policy and Communications at MSD South Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, good evening, Naren, and welcome to Africa Digest. Thank you very much. Good afternoon to you and the listeners. All right. Uh, talk to us about what prompted uh, this move to fund Unjani Clinics. Uh, our company has been contemplating the investment in Unjani Clinics before the COVID pandemic, uh, as experienced in South Africa. And the COVID pandemic just energized our efforts to ensure that we provide support for these clinics. We, we have appraised the model that the clinics use in terms of providing affordable health care uh, to communities that are currently underserved uh, and ensuring that the, these clinics are as close as possible to the patients in need. Uh, and this model is run and sustained by nurses. So it's a women empowerment model. Each clinic employs three nurses and could employ even up to five nurses depending on patient volumes. Um, so from every perspective, when we evaluated the uh, NGO and Johnny Clinics, we found this a very appealing investment, uh, a, v- a very p- appealing support initiative for us to contribute to uh, a- as a good corporate citizen in South Africa. And how did Unjani Clinics uh, catch your attention, Naren? Well, we are a company that's invested in healthcare. We're uh, we're committed to improving the lives of South Africans and Africans on this continent, uh, ensuring that they live better and longer lives through our innovative products and technologies. Um, Although we are not involved directly ourselves in the delivery of these technologies, we deliver our medicines and vaccines and therapeutics through uh, healthcare professionals, through hospitals, um, and through governments. We need to ensure that we do support the right initiatives where it comes to making a difference when we see that certain patient groups uh, are not being serviced appropriately by uh, existing infrastructure. And that's why Njani caught our attention. Um, aside from the fact that it creates employment, empowers women, um, it, it, the, the, the clinics operate on a fairly 
cost-effective basis. They provide services at reasonable cost. And most importantly for us, they are as close to the patient as, uh, as possible. This protects patients from having to take uh, long journeys and invest substantially in transportation costs uh, just to get health services. These clinics are closer to them, and the patient is saved a lot of distress in terms of travel. Um, so we found this model and this approach of Mujani clinics, the way in which the clinics are structured uh, and, and the way in which they are run to be very appealing. Currently, we have less than 100 clinics in operation, and those clinics are serving up to 500,000 patients per annum, which is fairly remarkable, I'm sure you'd agree. Sure. And how are you going to monitor progress uh, to make sure that uh, these funds are used appropriately? Well, the, the approach to that is multifaceted. So our in initial investment, which is fairly small in, in the grand scheme, uh, $750,000 over three years, is intended to provide back-end support to the clinics, ensuring that they achieve the appropriate organizational design, structure, and have the right systems in place. If you want to deliver cost-effective, efficient services, you have to ensure that your, your systems are sound and effective, and that is what we're contributing towards. We're contributing towards these clinics becoming sustainable, less reliant on donor funding, and ultimately being in a position to attract larger sums of funding. So this is just the start of what we hope will be securing of up to $5 million of investment in a few years' time uh, if we support Njani in ensuring their transition towards greater sustainability. We have an agreement with them where they have to deliver various milestones over the next three years. They have to achieve these milestones, and we will assess them against these milestones. In addition to that assessment that we are performing, the other donor partners uh, will also be assessing their performance before they provide the more substantial sums of funding. So there's been a due diligence process already conducted. There's ongoing monitoring over the next three years, and there is further separate assessments by other potential funders to support these clinics. Now, as you say, MSD is the global healthcare company. Why is it important, do you think, to have such public-private partnerships in advancing healthcare in the country? Well, I think our country is uh, represents a model that's screening for private-public partnerships. And the reason I say this is because of the enormous disparities that we have in South Africa and the fact that 84% of our population uh, access uh, uh, health care through the uh, public health care system, 48 million people uh, accessing health care through the public sector, and only 16% of our population experiencing uh, private health care. So that disparity in itself, for me, makes a case for public-private partnerships. Um, that shows us why we need to come together to ensure that there's more equitable access to health care, and certainly from the point of view of the principles that underpin the National Health Insurance Program, uh, that's what we're all striving to achieve. We may bicker and we may contest uh, the various elements of design of the NHI, but underpinning it is equitable access, and that's what we all seek to achieve. And even as we pursue the National Health Insurance Program, and even as we come out of COVID, we have repeatedly shown the importance of public-private partnerships. The Solidarity Fund is one very successful measure of what can be achieved 
when we work together. The fact that South Africa is able to access uh, the COVID vaccine when it comes into being uh, through, through funding from the Solidarity Fund uh, shows that we, we can service our population only by working together, not by individually trying to service only segments of the population. Sure. I'll support Munjani is yet another example of that. Absolutely. All right, uh, Naren, unfortunately, we have run out of time. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We highly appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity, and I wish you well. All right, uh, th- that's uh, Naren Rowe, uh, Director for Policy and Communications at MSD South Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, talking to me. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Yeah. Amnesty International says lawmakers from the Southern African Development Community, SADC, must strengthen laws to protect human rights amid growing threats in the region, including violations linked to Mozambique's conflict and a clampdown on the rights to freedom of expression and peaceful assembly due to COVID-19. The organization says from Angola to Lesotho to Zimbabwe, people have been subjected to excessive use of force by the police for standing up for their rights to freedom of expression and peaceful assembly. It says conflict in Mozambique's Cabo Delgado region has led to abductions, arbitrary detention and other violations. More from more from Robert Shibambu, media manager, Amnesty International's Southern Africa Regional Office. COVID-19 meant that a lot of people, uh, you will know that a lot of people in Southern Africa work in the informal economy. These are street vendors, they are laborers, and their jobs were considered to be uh, non-essential during COVID-19. So they were confined uh, to staying at home for in, in, as a way to mitigate against the spread of COVID-19. So as a result of that, what we have seen as Amnesty International is that a lot of people have lost um, incomes. They've lost um, means to be able to to earn their livelihoods on a daily basis. So that has increased uh, inequalities in the region. And you you might have seen a number of studies indicating that a lot millions of people, uh, including in countries like Zimbabwe, where the country uh, where a lot of people are unemployed, have became hungry, and uh, they were struggling with hunger in their homes. So this is a problem, and this is why, as Amnesty International, we are saying that SADC uh, parliament, parliamentarians, who are really the custodians of human rights in the region, they must uh, be able to work on developing and strengthening laws that protect people's livelihoods as well as human rights. And in conflict situation in Mozambique, you would know that... Uh, the war in Cabo Delgado has now gone into its third year. 
So we have seen a lot of lots and lots of people suffering human rights abuses. And this is really why we are calling on SADC parliamentarians to strengthen laws to protect people's through human rights from livelihoods to conflict situations. Now, how bad is the situation in Mozambique's Cabo Delgado region? Uh, talk to us a little bit further about uh, the situation on the ground. Thanks, Kumbel. So the, the situation in Cabo Delgado is quite bad because you know that it's now been three years since the conflict started in Cabo Delgado. There's an armed, con- armed group calling itself Al-Shabaab. It started with terrorizing civilians um, in, in villages, burning their, burning their homes, and actually killing a lot of people in the process. And as a result, we have seen a lot of people fleeing their homes. We know that more than 300,000 people have fled their homes. Some have fled into Tanzania because it's quite close to the Tanzanian border. And some became uh, displaced. We know that there are about 700,000 people who have lost livelihood, their livelihood as a result of the ongoing conflict. Now, what becomes the problem as well is the strategy that is being deployed by the Mozambican government uh, to go after these militants who have been terrorizing civilians. They are violating human rights in the process. They've been uh, implicated in torture. They've been implicated in killings of women, defenseless people uh, on the ground. So as Amnesty International, we are saying that uh, there have been uh, serious human rights violations, including around international humanitarian laws. Sure. So we are calling on Mozambican government to investigate um, uh, what has been going on and make sure that the perpetrators are brought to trials, in fair trials, obviously, because in cases like this, you find that when the state goes after people that are perceived to be uh, violating human rights, you find that in the process, the court the court processes that are used to hold these people accountable are not as fair and transparent. So we are calling for fair trials against anyone who is accused of having violated human rights, including the, the Mozambican armed forces who are operating in Cabo Delgado. And just in terms of uh, the outcomes of uh, the SADC parliamentary forum hosted yesterday, uh, what are the key outcomes of uh, that uh, forum? So as Amnesty International, we are quite encouraged, Kumbelo, that the MPs in the region are not in denial about uh, the issues that we have raised. There were frank discussions and debates yesterday during the meetings. And there's a realization that, you know, uh, they, they need to do more to be able to, to convince the regional body, SADC, to be able to do something. Because remember, these MPs, it's a forum. That was Robert Shivambu, the media manager at Amnesty International's Southern Africa Regional Office, talking to me earlier. It is now time for the latest economic news with Tracy Boomgard. Thank you, Kombelo. President of the African Export and Import Bank, Professor Oke Orama, says the success of the African continental free trade area depends on Africa's ability to combat corruption. Orama was presenting the keynote address at the virtual 2020 Africa Business Ethics Conference organized by the Lagos Chamber of Commerce and Industry in partnership with the Center for International Private Enterprises. 
A report on Nigeria's electricity industry has revealed that the country's grid failed at least once a month in the past 10 years. The report also revealed that a stable electricity supply to Nigerians cannot be guaranteed. According to the report, the country's transmission grid can only transmit 3.5 to 4.5 gigawatts of power efficiently. It also disclosed that most of the country's commercial and industrial customers had to rely fully or partially on self-generation. Former Eskom Board Chairperson Ben Ngubani has told the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture sitting in Johannesburg, South Africa, that he finds it disturbing that there were outside forces dictating affairs at the power utility. Ngubani conceded that there were corporate governance issues at Eskom, but has denied knowing the extent of the Gupta's influence. Well, it's quite disturbing because what we read here should never have happened. I mean, people actually dictating to us, remove PFMA, the board must do this. However, one must also bear in mind that I think it's a bigger problem we have as a country, the issue of governance. So I don't know how to frame it, but I see it as a problem that the country faces. Why is information leaking? I mean, there were accusations, for instance, that the Gupta family was appointing ministers. Why are we having all that sort of thing? The suggestion that there were people manipulating agree. The government in Sri Lanka has approved a Chinese plan to build a large tyre factory with generous tax concessions. The BBC's Jill McGovern has more details. This is the first such deal for the new industrial zone at the Chinese-built port Hambantota. The port is strategically important and China plans to make it a manufacturing hub for exports. The Thai company will employ 2,000 workers and export at least 80% of its goods. Sri Lanka needs foreign investment. Its economy, tourism especially, has been hard hit by militant attacks last year, then the pandemic. But critics accuse the current government of being too willing to make concessions to China. Markets in Asia ended mainly lower. Japan's Nikkei shed 0.3%, despite Japan's economy growing by 5.3% in the third quarter, the first quarterly growth rate this year, mainly due to consumer spending, which was boosted by government stimulus. Mainland China's Shanghai Composite Index was 0.8% down at the close of trade, with financial and transport stocks leading the decline. Hong Kong's Hang Seng declined by 0.8% on persistent worries over tensions between China and the U.S., while fresh concerns about a surge in COVID-19 infections also weighed on the market. Financials led the decline, with the financial sector falling 2%, but the IT sector rose by 1%. The U.S. dollars trading at 379.52 Nigerian Naira, 10.88 Botswana Pula, 110.31 Kenyan shilling and 21.02 Zambian kwacha. In BRICS currencies, 1 US dollars trading at 5.12 Brazilian hail, 73.90 Russian ruble, 73.72 Indian rupee, 6.53 Chinese wang and at 15.18 South African rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 74 pence to the British pound and 82 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,866 and platinum at $1,020 per ounce, 
Brent crude oil is at $47.55 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. All right, thank you, Tracy. It is now time for the latest sports news with Neto Chemani. Thank you, Kumbelo, from the sports desk. A very good afternoon. Starting off with netball news. Bongiwem Somi, captain of South Africa's national netball team, is attending the ongoing Spa Women's National Netball Championships in her capacity as a coach. Msomi is the assistant coach of the Johannesburg A team, working side by side with head coach Marguerite Rotman. Msomi, who is one of the most popular netball players in the country, was discovered while playing in the C section of the same championships. Since then, she has went on to represent the country at numerous tournaments around the world and has also played league netball in England and Australia. Msomi, who hails from Hamas Daily in South Africa's KwaZulu-Natal province, is happy to coach at the championships. So I think this time around it's just amazing that um, before I even, even um, have a couple of years of thinking, OK, maybe I'm going to stop playing. I'm already coaching senior team at national champs. And if I think back of um, the time we I was discovered, uh, even my coach back home still sees um, probably, I don't know, one of a few who got selected from playing at a C-section because obviously that side you kind of think uh, main players will play in the A-section. So I think um, this alone tells me that it actually has nothing to do with where you're playing um, especially in this tournament and um, how the whole team is doing, it can come back to you, yourself only, obviously as much as a team means so much. But again, I'm just liking the fact that I can always, uh, with my story and my journey, show that anything is possible. Msomi speaks on the importance of the championships in developing the game in the country. So national champs, um, I kind of really understand how deep it comes, you know, in terms of identifying talent. I was identified through the national champs. And I'm just thinking a whole lot of players do get a chance to come and play here if they probably didn't play, let's say, now a Telkom Nepal League, which again gives a lot of players, you know, some room to say, if I miss this, I literally have champs, uh, you know, to go and try and make whatever team, if you want to make a team, or just to gain experience because it's such a great opportunity. There is some senior players here who um, lots of girls can look up to. So this, for me, is one of the best... um, development platform for Nepal, South Africa. In Olympics news, in line with the promise made by Nigeria Minister of Youth and Sports Development, Sunday Dare, to begin early preparation for next year's Tokyo Olympics, the second phase of camping began on Monday in three centers across the country. According to the acting director of field and elite athletes, Dr. Simeon Ebojiaye, the athletes will be camped for three weeks in Port Hardcourt, Abuja and Yenogwa. In Port Hardcourt, 14 track and field athletes under the supervision of two coaches are in camp. In Abuja, eight para-athletes, 14 para-table tennis players and eight weightlifters are in camp 
while eight wrestlers are camped in Yanogwa by Isla State under the supervision of two coaches. On to rugby news. South Africa and England will meet for the first time since the 2019 Rugby World Cup final when they clash at Twickenham on November the 20th, 2021, as part of the Springboks' three-match tour of Europe. The announcement of the encounter is the second confirmation of the Springboks' three-match tour of Europe in November 2021, following on last week's announcement of the test against Scotland a week earlier on November the 13th in Edinburgh. The match at Twickenham will elicit fond memories for Springbok fans, as the South Africans' last match against England was a superb 32-12 victory at the International Stadium Yokohama in Japan to capture their third Rugby World Cup crown. And finally, in football news. Skipper of Ghana National Under-20 side, the Black Satellites, Daniel Banier Afri, says the team is ready to defend the flag of Ghana at the Wafu B Under-20 tournament and return with the trophy. Ghana is making a second appearance at the tournament after a poor showing at the last edition. The Black Satellites failed to qualify for the African competition that also serves as qualifier for the FIFA Under-20 World Cup. Afriyi, who spoke to the media on arrival in the Benin capital of Porto Novo, said the morale in camp was high, reminding his colleagues of their target for coming to the tournament, which is to win the trophy. Channel Africa, with sports from an African perspective. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Itio Chemani. This is Africa Digest. And uh, that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour from uh, myself, Kumbara Munjere, producer Lebomsweu, and the rest of the team. Thank you for listening. Channel Africa from the voice of the African perspective. We are playing out with a song called Jikizela, Jiki Jela by Tandiswa Mazwai. Cheers.